you know, my, I'd say my three biggest pieces of advice, educate yourself, expand your network because your net worth is your network. And this is a team sport and read books, go attend meetups, go to conferences, spend money on your education. Welcome to Podcast for Patriots. I'm your host, Jim Fralick, and this is show number 11. I ain't rich, but I damn sure want to be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Our goal here with Podcast for Patriots is to educate, inspire, and assist military members and veterans in achieving financial wealth through real estate investing. Hello, fellow patriots. Uh, Welcome today. Uh, Super privileged to be introducing you to Colby Bowers, the managing partner of Veteran Pride Investment Group. Uh, Colby's a retired uh, U.S. Air Force veteran, a wounded warrior. Uh, He's been investing since 2001. He's done fix and flips, single-family rentals, uh, note lending, and multi-units where he's uh, settled right now. He and his group, he was a first responder in the military. I'll let him talk about that a little bit. Colby, you have me a five-by. Can you hear me? Hi, Jim. Yes, I can. Hey, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. First off, uh, thank you very much uh, for inviting me on your podcast today. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my journey where I'm at today, as well as uh, my company and kind of what we're doing and uh, also what we're doing to help our fellow veterans and uh, community first responders. Awesome. I appreciate it. Hey, so I did that little thumbnail sketch on, on you and I know uh, we talked last week. Hopefully I'm, I'm counting you as my newest, my newest friend. I wonder if you could give listeners a minute or two or a few minutes, uh, take your time about your military background and uh, how you got involved in real estate. Over. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was an enlisted medic in the Air Force. I uh, joined back in uh, way back in 1993. They able to work various jobs in the field, from inpatient to emergency room, and really loved. Uh, the excitement and adrenaline rush of being on the ambulances, you know, and first responder. You know, the course of my career, I was very lucky to have uh, some really great NCOs and officers that apparently saw something in me that I didn't quite see. And they really pushed me in the medical field. Uh, and they really, really pushed me uh, to go into a, what we call an independent duty medical technician or IDMT for short. Finally went to this school. And what this did is it actually, it took all my years of the medical stuff and put me out in the field basically by myself. I was able to do sick call, uh, make a diagnosis, provide med- uh, prescribe medications, did this to, to an extension of a provider that could be hundreds, if not thousands of miles, or even back stateside if I was in the Middle East. So I really loved it. I'd set my sights on becoming a physician assistant someday, and this is going down the road. I was like, this is my career. I have self-actualized. This is it. You know, this I found my <laughs> calling. Okay. Uh, or so I thought. Uh, ended up being assigned uh, a little bit later, a couple years later after graduating to Moody Air Force Base, which is in Valdosta, Georgia. Uh, this is where I bought my first home, utilizing a VA loan. 
Just want to point out the interest rate on that property that I bought it, my first home, was 7.3%, which most of your listeners today would be like, holy cow, that's ridiculous. But if anyone remembers back in the day, late 90s, early 2000s, that was actually one heck of a deal. And at the time, that was like the the lowest it had been in years. I don't think it's the, low, I think it was the lowest interest rate it had been up until that point. And mine was close to 10% at the time in 2000, I think, or 99. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, these three and a half to 5%, you know, even now if it's going up, people complain about, but it's like, it could be worse. But I spent six years at that unit, uh, ended up deploying quite a bit. I I arrived there in 2001, August to be exact. Less than six weeks later, I was on an airplane, which was literally five days after September 11th. And in that six years, I was assigned there. I did a little over a thousand days uh, deployed. Wow. Yeah. Um, after I left there, became an instructor teaching combat first aid to deploying uh, troops and eventually ended my career. Closed out that, uh, here in Colorado where I was a squadron superintendent and eventually actually became the uh, uh, MATCHCOM functional manager for all medics in Air Force Base Command. So, but I do want you know, kind of go back and talk about uh, that first house and that assignment because that's what really launched my real estate investing career. Because uh, I was deployed so much, I had a lot of extra money burning a hole in my pocket. You know, instead of like every other young airman, uh, E5, E4 at the time, I didn't go out and buy brand new vehicles. I started buying properties. And when I left that uh, assignment, I had uh, four properties under my belt and I was hooked. Eventually, after leaving there, I had a total of 10 single family homes. And then the downturn happens. That 06 to 08 to 10, you know, the market took a huge downturn. And I managed to survive that. Did not lose any properties, no short sales, no uh, foreclosures, anything of that nature, which knock on wood. But I learned a valuable lesson about diversification in there. Obviously, that put a damper also on my expanding my real estate empire and kind of slowed it down. And I started focusing on my career. By the time I retired in 2016, I had suffered what they are saying is too many strokes, ended up being diagnosed with multiple TBIs, PTSD had short-term memory loss. I walked with a cane due to balance issues and was on track to receive a service dog. But I think the hardest part about this whole time is I could not safely hold my son in my arms for any period of time for fear of falling. And a lot of this, you know... Sorry to hear that. uh, Well, you know, it's it's part of doing business, I like to say. You know, it ended up being... Blown up twice, a couple of hard landings. I jumped out of airplanes for a few years, um, which apparently you don't have to be too smart to do. Uh, <laughs> you know, had a lot of fun, but just didn't take care of the noggin and being being in the medical field. We're the worst patients. So when I probably should have went and, and been seen and taken care of, I sucked it up for, for my team and my troops and, and pressed on. And, you know, and it eventually catches up to you. You know, I, I tell you, I had to deal with a lot of depression. And... You know, especially because that becoming a physician assistant at that time, I was off the table. <laughs> Would you want to see me? Because I know I wouldn't want to see myself. Copy. You know what? And, and I say all that because it's part of my journey to where I get here. During that same time frame, when I was at probably the lowest point in my life, I was able to, to participate in a couple of veteran-focused retreats, a couple of couples retreats. Um, and these were through nonprofits. It actually helped set me on the road to better health and a better life. One of my biggest takeaways uh, of being at these retreats and talking with the coordinators was it was a full-time job and a constant stressor for them to raise money so they could put these these very helpful events on. 
And out of this experience is how my company, uh, Veteran Pride Investment Group, was born. Uh, my business partner and friend, Robert Palin, we've known each other for 25 years. We were actually uh, stationed together at uh, Little Rock Air Force Base in Arkansas. We started a VPIG, as we affectionately call it, is, uh, in July of 2017. And our mission is, is to utilize real estate and business profits for the betterment of our veterans and first responders nationwide. We call it Profit for a Purpose. 20% of our company's proceeds we donate to a select few charities annually. And it's opened up a lot of doors for us. And our next phase that we're actually working on, um, hopefully implement by the end of this year, more than likely be 2020, is we want to offer 10% of our units to homeless veterans that are in the VA system. Uh, we're already kind of working with uh, the HUD, uh, Housing and Development. They have a Veteran Affairs Supportive Housing Division. They support homeless veterans that are meeting the care of the VA to get not become homeless. And so we want to help fill that gap of finding homes and, and safe, safe housing for our veterans that, that need it. That's great. That's uh, yeah. amazing. Well, Colby, thanks for sharing uh, an incredible journey with us uh, right, right off the bat there in terms of uh, what you went through, your, your journey to today. And sort of your purpose, and I know a lot of real estate guys like to say, um, "What is what is their why?" And uh, you obviously have a very strong why. I was blessed to stumble upon your website, and I didn't exactly stumble on it. I'm gonna uh, uh, probably hire the same guy that did your uh, w- website to p- potentially revamp one of mine. And uh, when I saw it, it uh, struck me. And then I drilled down a little bit, and then after talking to you, I realized what you're trying to do. I think it's uh, I think it's incredible, and I'm definitely glad we've connected. And looking forward to connecting other veterans into what you're trying to do. 10% of your units uh, for homeless vets would be an amazing accomplishment if you're able to pull that off. And just what you've been doing so far in the retreats, I was able to look at a, a video uh, where you're a star in one of these videos uh, at, a, at a retreat <laughs> out, of, at, yes. out of the ski resort, the, cam- <laughs> the camo one. Uh, great work they do. And I think uh, uh, you and your buddies that were there and your, and your spouses seems like a great a great opportunity and a great way to begin healing the healing process that uh, that you've been on so I appreciate you uh, digging down and sharing that with us and I want to ask you and I think you might have hit on it with uh, the diversi- diversification comment but I want to ask you if you might have a, a an early warning signal for early warning systems online general quarters general quarters man your battle stations this is not a drill repeat this is not a drill any new investors that are listening to this in terms of uh, what they should be aware of and maybe some hard lesson you learned along the way? <laughs> oh, Jim, where do I begin? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just pick one, the biggest one. Yeah. No, there's, there's, uh, every day is a lesson learned. No, I'll take a, a recent, a recent one actually. And, and a very good lesson learned is, is basically vet, vet, and then vet some more your contractors. Uh, we had a contractor just on a fix and flip in a different state, basically took us for close to $20,000. He was licensed, bonded, had good reviews, had a, uh, you know, we went to the, the better business and everything, you know, guy had clean. Yeah. So that, a critical lesson. What we did is basically don't take anything at face value. Uh, make sure as contractors, no matter who you're dealing with, call and ask for uh, previous clients. Try to find previous clients that they don't give you. Because they're going to give you the ones that obviously are going to give you the best, uh, you know, the best review that they did a good job on. 
you know, I've even asked for is I'm like, I want to talk to somebody in your lineup that basically was not, you know, 100% happy. Um, and I don't really care what it's about, but I want to see how do they handle it? What was the, the issue? If they won't give it to me, to me, that's a clue. What are you hiding? But are truly, you know, hey, if they stand behind their work and they stand behind their name of their company, you know, they should not have any issues giving that to you. That's strong. That's uh, a- absolutely. I can tell you, we, we learned from experience recently, and I definitely don't want to personally be involved in rehabs. I'm kind of a pushover when it comes to some of this stuff. M- my wife's from Northern New Jersey. She's not a pushover. And so even when we had our own home built uh, in the late nineties and we were offsite, like a hundred miles away, all the things that she said we were getting screwed over on, we were, I feel your pain. That's a great lesson. I'm glad you brought it up for the listeners. Oh yeah. And on top of that is now we require a written contract with a detailed scope of work, phase payments after satisfied inspections, and then also an estimated completion time. You know, it, it works. A lot of people don't like it. It's a huge pain in the ass, but it's not nearly as painful as losing $20,000. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And just the way we run military projects too, I guess. <laughs> we try to, right? Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, one thing I like to ask uh, guys I interview, Colby, is what type of investor they are in terms of uh, opportunity, geography, asset class, or niche. And you've run the gamut a little bit and settled where a lot of the bigger guys actually end up settling, I guess, with, I believe, multi-class. But uh, what's, your, what's your philosophy in terms of investing and how did you come to focus where you do? I focus on, you know, so I'll tell you more of my criteria. I take a lot of things into consideration, uh, but my my basic focus is I focus on asset class, geography, and opportunity. And so I look at C-class properties, typically 40 plus unit, 1980 or newer. I really like tertiary markets with a value add or reposition possibility. I cannot stand flat roofs, so no flat roofs. My goal with my properties is to create a legacy property or what I call a legacy property. I'm looking for properties that I plan on holding for 20 plus years. You know, so that's that's my my initial criteria. I stay away from class D properties. They clash they cash flow great, but your ability to increase value over the long term is greatly diminished. And I really like I focus on the C class uh, and that niche that it offers because I believe I firmly believe that that at least for me it offers the best returns for your effort and your time. This definitely doesn't mean that I don't look at other asset classes. I do own or invested in a B plus property, but you know, and I also look at is is a deal uh, and, and an opportunity can come from any asset class. But my focus is C class property. I call that kind of my niche, and with a value add. So I love looking at property with, with high operating expenses, low occupancy. To me, those are both signs of mismanagement and have great potential to go in in there to not only increase cash flow, but also value. And I'd like to talk is why why I focus on this and then increasing the cash flow, because to me, cash flow is king. And I'd like to give a little example is a 50 unit property that if I can increase $25 a door, right, or per unit per month, I'm going to increase my net operating expenses by $15,000. So that $25 a month increase in rent, I just literally increased the value of that property by $187,000. And that's at a C, at, a, at, a, at an A-cap in a, in a C-class property. And that's huge. So not only am I getting good cash flow to make my investors happy, to keep the lights on and pay the bills, but also when we go to do a liquidating event, say a cash-out refinance, uh, say in that five, six, 10-year timeline, I've increased the value of the property, so I'm increasing exponentially the return to my investors. Sure. That makes sense. Wow, that was a great 
a great example. I'm wondering if I'm going to slow you down a little bit to explain a couple of the terms there for our listeners. Something I haven't necessarily done a great job on some of the past podcasts, but you mentioned NOI and you mentioned cap rate. And for those people just getting involved in investing, can you, as well as the class C versus class D, uh, what is all that about? Sure. Yeah, let's talk about the classes. So typically, the your classes in multifamily, it really pretty much in any commercial capacity, it's going to run from class A to class D. And class A properties are like your brand new, top of the line, you know, 2018, 2019 properties. So a lot of luxury apartments. They offer a lot of amenities. You know, they may have a pool, a dog walk, a playground, a gym, workout center, things of that nature, right? Wi-Fi in the common areas. Really nice. You know, it's basically a new car smell, if you will. Your class B properties are typically going to be about 10 years older or older. They're going to have some of those amenities, but yet they're still going to be more of your little bit older architecture, but still nice. Uh, Your class C is typically going to be 20 to 30 plus years old. A lot of times they're outdated. You know, you're going to have the, the 1980s interior, maybe early 90s when they were renovated at one time. Um, it's typically four walls and a roof. They may not have uh, any outside storage. There's probably no washer and dryer hookups on the inside. And they have a little laundry mat downstairs and, and not a lot of, of area. Um, they may have some vacant land next to it or that's a part of the property, but it's not being utilized. And in your class D, I like, you know, kind of those are your not so nice areas. You know, it might be a place that uh, you might not want to go to after dark, probably want to carry a gun when you go. Sometimes you hear them referred to as war zones, just not not really good, right? So a lot of those is, and that's where a lot of folks, they get that whole intuition of, oh, you're a slumlord. If you invest in class D properties, there's a good chance that you might be a slumlord. Um, <laughs> Got it. You know, lower clientele, they're not going to take care of your property. You have a lot of turnover. And that's another thing that we can talk about. A turnover will kill your your uh, your net operating income because the more turnover, the more times you have tenants leaving, uh, vacating your property and you have new ones coming in, it's an expense. You have to get cleaners in there. You have to do key changes, whatever the case may be. Plus, you know, background checks, it all adds up. So you want to minimize turnover. And that's why class C to B minus is what I focus on. Because there's, there's a lot of room for that value add that I can go in and, and increase that value. And then uh, net operating income, it's basically you take your, your gross income. This is what you everyone pays their rent. Here's what you have. Say whatever it is per month. Here's your operating expenses minus your your mortgage payment or what's called what's called debt service. All right? So basically that's your taxes, insurance, water, utilities, your day-to-day expenses. You take that, you subtract that from from your your uh, your gross rent. There's your net operating income. And asset classes typically have a cap rate assigned to them. And a lot of that's it, that's it's going to be market and geography specific. I tell you, a here um, I'm I'm an hour north of Denver, Colorado. A C class property here is anywhere from three and a half. I've seen them as low as three and a half. But let's say four to five percent capitalization rate. Where my primary market is in Arkansas, I'm seeing anywhere from seven to eight percent. And basically, cap rate simply represents is the is the yield of the property, the value of the property over one year time horizon, and that's assuming the property is based off of uh, based off purchased on cash and not a loan. So that's why we don't include debt service in the, in the net operating income and when it comes to the cap rate. And the reason that is is because what I get uh, a loan for or a mortgage for may be different from the next person. 
So that's going to be dependent on how much cash I want to put down on the property. So it's not good. It's not accurate to add that into your calculation. So you pull that out. Everything else out is very objective. And that's how you get your, your cap rate, your net operating income, and how you can value a property and going forward. Hey, thanks for, yeah, (laughs) I love it. Thanks for explaining that to, uh, to our listeners. Uh, Much appreciated. And uh, things I come back to again and again in the multi-unit space in terms of figuring things out. And we won't, uh, we won't take that a step further into IRR today, but I've done that on another podcast where someone's explaining it. So uh, you did a great job explaining that for us. And I really appreciate the example and the explanation. Uh, Now I'm wondering for those same uh, types of investors listening, could be uh, young military people or people are just uh, newly separated who haven't invested before. Say people have uh, little money or poor credit, and but they're really excited about getting involved in real estate. You got any advice you might give somebody like that? Oh, yeah. That's, I'll tell you what, and that's a great question because I was there. I was like, I don't have any money. My credit's not the best, but I want to get into real estate. How do I do this? One thing I love about commercial real estate and multifamily especially is you don't have to have much money and your credit score plays very little into buying buying that real estate. It's a team sport. So basically you want to align yourself with people that have the money and can fi- or can find the money and getting a loan from the bank is what we call um, is going to be based off the property and its performance and not you as an individual. So that's one of the key differences from a residential loan where you have to, you know, basically provide everything up until, you know, your 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 firstborn child has to be you know, on this <laughs> note type deal to where when you get into commercial real estate and and I want to really caveat this is it, it there is a limit um, and what I mean by that is there's a minimum limit and on the commercial side and what I shoot for and this will make things you know it, it'll come here I look for non recourse loan and to qualify for a non recourse loan is you're looking for what we call agency debt and that's going to be Freddie and Fannie Mac you know everyone's heard of those well they have a commercial side and basically as you submit there are some financial things, documents and stuff that you have to provide, but you align yourself with somebody that has money that has done this. They provide those, you meet that requirement. And as a non-recourse, again, it's going to look at, you look, it has to be a million dollar loan or greater. And I know most of your folks on here are going, oh my God, a million dollars. How can I do that? Let me tell you, it's easier to get a loan for greater than a million dollars. It's actually easier to get a loan for $10 million than it is to get a loan for a million dollars. And the reason being is because of the scalability and the, the, the higher the loan, chances are the higher the, the number count, the door count. So 150 unit property, depending on where you buy it at, nine, $10, $10 million, right? Um, that's cheap. You can see, I'm seeing them all the way up to 20 plus million dollars, depending on your asset class and where you're at. If you go in and you get anything under a million dollars, that's what you have. That's your recourse. So you're going to be looking at your, your regional bank, your local bank. Anything greater than a million dollars, I don't do anything regional unless I need I won't get into it. We won't get into bridge loans and all that other stuff. That's but <laughs> for simplicity, an agency debt or a non-recourse loan. I use I use a national. I, I hire them. I pay them X number of dollars on the closing cost. They go out and they find me ten or twelve lenders out there that do non-recourse loans, and they bring me back terms. And I'm looking at a 30-year amortization. Right now, it's about five and a half percent for a 10-year term. All right. It's based, so basically after 10 years, I have to either pay it off or refinance, um, but it's amortized over 30 years. So your payments are paced off of a 30-year loan. Whereas if I was looking at a regional bank and doing a recourse loan, typically you're going to have to 
Um, it's going to be higher interest. A lot of times you're looking at, you know, upwards of a point more or 1% more than what you would get on, on uh, agency debt. And it's typically going to be amortized to 25 years. And you may have to do, they may do a 10-year term. But in my experience, like after year five, they go back and they hit you with a, with a, um, a bump, you know, maybe a half a percentage point or what have you. Now, when you're talking nine, ten million dollars and you look at a, a, a percent difference and reduced five years on your on your amortization, that's a lot of money out of your pocket that you're losing. So that's what we focus on that those larger loans and the agency debt. And what's great is it's all about your team. So I align myself with folks that have been doing this. So when I go, the, it's like it's it's not me. They they provide some of the financials. We go through, have not had a, a, an issue getting a loan yet because they just they do a cursory check and the rest of it. They're always asking, well, what are you going to do with the property? How are you going to increase rents? What's your business plan for the property? You know, how long are you going to hold it for? That's what I like about it. So you don't need a lot of money and you don't need the best of credit. You just need to increase your net your uh, network. Great advice. So that's good. One thing I wanted to ask you about, um, just so, so I understand from my own understanding, in terms of the non-recourse, if someone owns t- one member owns more than 20% of the property, then that person would have to sign, correct? Is that the one exception? Yes. Right. Yeah. So when we, and especially more so when we're, yeah, when we're talking about syndication and typically when you get into these bigger deals, so I, I consider I'm a syndicator, right? So I, I find deals um, and then I bring them to two people, to my team, if you will. I tell everyone my team, I put them in, we're all, it's a synergy of effort. We set it up is, so you have general partners and then you have limited partners. Now we can talk about SEC qualifications. This is a securities um, so we have to fall under the SEC rules and typically we're going to do what's called a 506B. So it's, I can have up to 35 sophisticated investors and an unlimited of accredited investors. And that's all based off of how much your net worth is. And I don't have it memorized for accredited. I know your net worth has to be greater than a million dollars or a sophisticated investor has to be somebody has a background and has invested in real estate, securities, stocks. It could be anything to be a sophisticated. Basically, the SEC just wants to make sure, do you have an understanding of the risk involved and go, hey, yes, you can lose your money. So the limited partners basically have no say so. Those are, but they get 70% of the deal. 30% of it typically is going to go towards your general partnership. So I find the deals, I'm on the general partnership, right? So I get all my team together. I get my 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 money raisers, my uh, um, sponsors that I utilize if they're going to bring on some of their financials, property management, whatever the case may be. Sometimes I'll we'll offer property management a piece of the pie, give them a little bit more um, investment into the property, make sure it runs well. So we split up that 30% amongst the general partners. We all have a role. Limited partners, they just give us their money. We update them monthly, quarterly on the progress of the of the uh, of the project. Basically, looking at their silent partner now. Yeah, and nobody, and we, and we make sure that nobody in the investment owns greater than twenty percent. So the most you can own is nineteen percent. Because you're right, if it is greater than twenty percent, twenty percent or more, then you have to go on to the partnership side, and then it gets a little bit more convoluted. Especially if you have a limited partner that has a lot of money, but not necessarily a lot of experience in multifamily, they can get in the way, and and it does create some SEC rules and guidelines that 
why we get lawyers and stuff involved. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for explaining that. And, and you did it very well without going into a lot of SEC law. Trying to keep it simple because it's... <laughs> I usually fall asleep during those courses because I'm like, that's why I get a lawyer. Yeah, you have to know that you have to know the minimum, the, at least some of the basics. Yeah, I have the uh, Gene Trowbridge book uh, that I refer to about once every two weeks on uh, <laughs> yeah. syndications and to make sure uh, myself as a general partner and a guy who raises capital, doesn't, I'm not uh, breaking any SEC rules and I'm understanding who's doing what uh, in terms of who comes to the equation. So. Thanks for explaining that for sure. And you made it very clear. Sounds exciting in general. I'm glad you're reinforcing uh, why I'm focused in the same exact space that you're uh, talking about in terms of syndications and multi-units. But so getting towards the end here, I don't want to keep you forever online. I know we had to do a sound check for about 10 minutes before we got started, but (laughs) I wonder if you can, uh, if you could go back in time, back to 2001, of course you didn't know uh, 9-11 was going to happen and that huge impact it was going to have on your future, uh, nor did any of us really. But I, uh, what would you change, if anything, in terms of your real estate path and the actions that you took at the time? You know, I hear this question quite a bit. I hear it asked around on, you know, different groups, podcast meetups, and, you know, and everyone it kind of says the same thing. They go back and they do bigger deals sooner, or they would have gotten into multifamily sooner. Honestly, I've thought about that a number of times, and I wouldn't change a thing. I am where I'm at today because of my journey. If I would have changed my journey and I could go back and tell myself going, hey, invest sooner, go bigger, do all this. Honestly, I'd probably be more materialistic. I wouldn't have an appreciation of where I've come from and what I want to do. And honestly, I'd probably also be bankrupt because I'd be taking probably too much risk too soon. I'm, I'm happy in my journey. And I tell anybody is don't rush it. You know, my, I'd say my three biggest pieces of advice, educate yourself, expand your network because your net worth is your network. And this is a team sport and read books, go attend meetups, go to conferences, spend money on your education. If you only have $500, don't invest that. To, my, my honest thing, and there's, there's probably be people that disagree is don't invest it in real estate. Don't take that $500 and invest it in real estate right now. Take that $500 and invest it in yourself. Invest in your education, podcast, uh, go to a conference, get around folks that are doing this, that are um, been doing it for a while. That is where you're going to gain it. And that $500 that you invest in yourself, that return on investment is going to be exponentially more than if you invested into one deal. So I'm a huge proponent, educate, educate, educate. Probably in the last 12 months, and I'm in a position I can do this, but I probably spent $20,000 in my own education and, and with my partner in our edu- our education with coaching, mentoring, mastermind groups. And we went, we started 2019 with zero multifamily. We spent the six months prior to that building our team. And as of last Friday, um, I don't know when you're this is gonna post, but out of as of the first part of uh, first week in June, um, I, we now are sitting at 535 doors. It's due to education. That's great, and it's a team. So I look at I, there are no competitors, even in my own market. I don't look at another syndicator as a competitor. I look at them as a future partner, because if we can work together, we can combine forces. You're gonna grow quicker. You're gonna grow faster, and you're gonna do it better. So. Awesome. That's, that's, that's my, my pearls of wisdom. They were good. They're good pearls of wisdom. 
Is she for a uh, Floridian? Did you say you grew up in Florida? I did. Yes. Where, whereabouts? Just curious. Uh, in the southeast, uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. West Palm Beach. Guess guess where I'm from? Fort Lauderdale. Clewiston on Lake Okeechobee. That's okay. An hour away. See, yep. you, you see, you grew up in West Palm. You were within an hour of me, but uh, you didn't know about me because it's like those little That's towns, true. little towns you had to drive through if you were going across to Fort Myers. That's uh, yeah, we're practically in the same. What high school did you go to? Uh, Palm Beach Lakes High School. Palm Beach Lakes. Okay. So you probably went to Clewiston High School then, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's a giveaway. <laughs> sure did, nice. yeah. Great place, to, great place to visit, but I do not miss the humidity, the mosquitoes, or the love bugs. The last thing I'm going to ask you is, speaking of education, do, do you have any favorite uh, business or real estate books that inspired you the most? Because I've got a feeling you've read a lot of them. I Yeah, I read a lot of books. But I tell you, you know what really set things in motion and really kind of helped make, make things sense on the real estate side um, commercial side was uh, crushing it in apartments and and commercial real estate by Brian Murray. I really liked it. He, he explained it, threw in some um, you know the jargon, the terminology, put in some great equations to go off of. But he explained it to where anybody can pretty much understand it, and he used real world examples to really drive home what he was talking about. So I really like that. And I think that the, my next book that I think is just as important, uh, more for the mindset side, and this is a mindset industry, um, High Performance Habits by uh, Brendan um, Bouchard. Um, you know, if, if you want to be successful, you need to em- emulate the, the successful. And it all comes down to mindset. Um, and, you know, if you have limited beliefs, um, if you're a pessimist, um, this, this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard for you to succeed because there is a lot of pushback. There's a lot of, you know, getting kicked in the gut because something doesn't go right. And you just, you got to push through it. And the only way to do that is have that that correct mindset. So I'd say those are the two books that really stand out in my mind. Okay. Thanks for those. Uh, first time anyone answered either one of those. So I'm taking notes on it feverishly. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Uh, today, Colby, I'm wondering if you got any 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 last thoughts uh, or tips of advice because uh, you've given us a bunch to work with for sure. No, um, yeah, I, it, it's just it's it's getting yourself out there, get outside your comfort zone. Um, you know, when you're leaving the military, or even if you're active duty, uh, you can start at any time. I know I can name off three active duty military guys that are breaking into the multifamily. Because as soon as their enlistment's up or as soon as they hit that retirement button, they're going to just transfer over and be able to do it full time. They're spending money on their education. They're getting around. They're, they're increasing their network. And again, I just I can't reiterate the education and, and the network uh, networking uh, enough. If you want to succeed and get big and get I want to say get rich because that sounds kind of, you know, self-serving. But, yeah, you know, nobody wants to work the rest of their life. And I want to take my wife to Europe. You got to get around folks that are doing it. I agree. All right. Well, well, thanks for that. Thanks for taking the time uh, today, Colby. I really have enjoyed this. I've, I've enjoyed learning about your your journey from 2001, your uh, your incredible service to country, of course, and your sacrifice and your uh, having to work back from that. Uh, definitely uh, inspirational, hopefully to others, as it is to me when I listen to it. Your profit per purpose especially uh, you know, 10% of units to homeless vets in the future as a, as a goal and 20% of your profits uh, from VPIG, as you guys call it, great acronym. 
the the advice on vetting contractors and valuable uh, the way you broke down the C class and sort of your, your niche and geography and uh, asset class and uh, explaining NOI and cap rate for us, the advice to, to first-time investors, the opportunity of getting involved in commercial class assets. Uh, I really appreciate explaining all that. Sort of the way you look at educating yourself first and investing in yourself. Uh, it's uh, been refreshing all around. I look forward to working with you on deals in the future, actually. Thanks again, Colby, and thanks for your service and sacrifice, and uh, you have a good day. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate being on it. I'm proud to be your host. I'm privileged to have served, and I'm grateful for all your sacrifices. Until next time. Because the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land